0: My first day of my first tour was the Mont Ventoux stage in 2000. And I was delayed getting there. Uh I walked into the press room as the riders were on the final climb. And Armstrong and Pantani crest the hill together. And, you know, Pantani wins the stage. The press room erupts. Yeah. And everybody around me is saying, Lance, let Pantani win. And I said, what?
1: What? (laughs) (laughs) Hey there, folks. I am Ted King. I'm your host, and welcome back to another episode of King of the Ride podcast, a very special podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I mean it when I say I'm creating this podcast for all people, for all ages, for all walks of life, and of course, for all sexes. I am therefore very excited to have our first female guest on the show. The acclaimed sports journalist with nearly a decade and a half time spent at ESPN.com. Friend of mine, friend of yours, Bonnie Ford is on the show today. Now, name a sporting event at the highest level, and she has covered it. The Olympics, Super Bowls, World Series, World Cups, tennis and golf opens, skiing at the highest level, and of course, cycling with now north of 12 Tours de France to her name. Bonnie has seen it. Bonnie has experienced it. And Bonnie has written about it. Now we at the King of the Ride podcast, we continue to have the best sound studio in the business, namely wherever it is we post up with a microphone and conversation. So now continuing a three episode theme. This is now episode two, the Grand Prix Quebec City in Montreal made for really terrific podcast venues. So in the background of a conversation with Bonnie here today, you're going to hear that our last King of the Ride guest, Lawson Craddock, and 180 of his his co-racing comrades in the background. You're going to hear the song and dance that is a bike race. You're going to hear the breakaway, the peloton, the race caravan going by, fans cheering, the helicopter overhead, Bonnie and I caught up amid the, the early first few laps of the Grand Prix Quebec City before it was time to buckle down and really soak up the race itself. Canada played great venue for, for podcasting, for hanging out, and for catching up with friends and, and former colleagues. Now, I'm honored to have Bonnie on the show. And I'm pleased with how candid she is about her job. First, journalism in general and what it's like being a woman in, quite frankly, a male dominated industry. And this speaks both to sports and even more so sports journalism. And then she, you know, she's going to talk candidly about the parody in sports in general. She's going to talk about this in cycling and, of course, tennis, swimming, skiing, plenty of other sports that she covers. We also talk about the King Challenge, the general meaning of, the growing awareness of, and yet the understand, uh, misunderstanding of brain injury. Once again, I'm going to take this time right now really quickly to plug the King Challenge. October 20th is coming right up. This is going to be our eighth annual ride raising funds for the Kremple Center. As many of you already know, my father, he was a prominent orthopedic surgeon loving father, husband, a great all-around guy, very healthy at the time of his stroke. He suffered a stroke 15 years ago. And the Kremble Center is an organization purely dedicated to improving the lives of those living with brain injury. They're a pillar in this field and quite frankly are an example of the kind of organization in which there should be many in every state, dozens throughout the country, and yet they remain an island. There are not many of these organizations. Brain injury is a growing yet hidden epidemic. So so check out kingchallenge.org. It makes for a great day with an awesome beneficiary. Really, really awesome day out on bikes. And as always, I really appreciate your, your questions, your comments, your critiques. Keep sending those my way at all things I am Ted King. Your reviews are invaluable. Please take those 10 seconds it takes to offer up a review on whatever it is you are listening to right now. And the newest revelation, please hit the subscribe button. This is one of the most powerful ways to help grow this podcast to expand our audience and get terrific conversations like these with Bonnie to more people like you. So thank you all for all of that. Thank you for listening and please enjoy the show. in the action.
0: Back in the action.
1: I understand you had a summer reprieve from from following bike racing live and in person? It wasn't my choice. Uh
0: I was scheduled to go to the Tour de France and had a family medical issue that kept me home and had to write off TV, which always makes me feel fraudulent. But there was enough interest. People wanted my take on this and that. So Mm -hmm. I did it.
1: What our listeners are getting accustomed to is our studio is the the grand whole wide world. So here we are in a park in Quebec City. It's the uh, corner one two. We're at corner. We're between corners two and three of the Quebec City Grand Prix, and we have a helicopter overhead because the breakaway has recently gone by, and the peloton is coming. Um, very exciting stuff. Anyway, so. <laughs> the as you you said it wasn't it's not the most it's not the typical format to be writing off tv coverage during the tour but this day and age there's so much media coverage it's it's it must be sort of a blessing in a way um how much i mean shoot myself here with a couple of microphones anybody can be a journalist these days uh i mean how 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 easy is the coverage
0: well from what afar? I, what i missed is the amazing color sight smell sound feel tension of being on site and you just can't replace that I mean you can watch somebody be interviewed on television but you don't maybe see them interviewed at the team bus or at the finish line with you know road grime on their faces totally spent um hot day you know just you don't get a sense of their effort. And you don't, of course, get a chance to talk to all their teammates and the director and all the other things I would normally do when there's a spectacular development in a stage.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Much like 185 cyclists pedaling by in the midst of your response, which is uh, a spectacle. There is every color under the sun. There goes the dozen plus team cars um, I Yeah, I'm finding it interesting Being on the other side of the barriers But I'm completely with you That it is Whether you're in the race or outside of the race there It, it is a spectacle um, And Canada, I think With these two races has done a magnificent job Bringing that European feel To two relatively old North American cities in Quebec City, Montreal uh, Bringing that European bike race feel Here to North America These are your first two Quebec City, montreals They are. Welcome. These were definitely some of my favorites. Um, So, taking a step back, I wanted to to chat today. I wanted to uh, chat today for no shortage of reasons, one of which, you are the King of the Rides' first female guest. Thank you very much for agreeing to be here. Honored. Um, You covered a lot of the races that I was in. Um, We became... Amicable, we it was always a friendly face uh, before, during, and after a race. It was, so it's really nice to be on this side of the the fence. I appreciate um,
0: that. So you are not going to tell them about the time that we passed each other on the Philly bike path, <laughs> and I rang my bell, and you noticed I was not wearing a helmet.
1: Completely Helmets are important. Me. Yeah. Oh man, busted. Um, great memory. I was not going to bring that up, but we can definitely talk about uh, the ramifications of wearing one's helmet later.
0: It's the last time. Uh Uh-huh. Last time I went bareheaded. Yeah. I promise you.
1: Did you feel, do you feel naked if you don't wear a helmet? Yes. Um, did you feel naked not wearing a helmet before I called you out that day?
0: Yes. My inner voice always told me it was wrong. Mm -hmm. And obviously with an issue that's dear to you and also dear to me, you know, every once in a while you just want, that sensation of being a little kid when you rode around on your bike, not thinking about anything serious. So that's what I was going for that day. It was wrong. Um, I was riding with my husband who isn't always the most diligent helmet wearer either, Uh but uh, I've gotten very stern since then.
1: Excellent. Um, I like to speak the truth. So I, I, admit I don't wear my helmet all the time. Um, if I'm riding a half mile to the grocery store, occasionally if I'm going to the market, um, however, I like to keep a pretty strict policy on myself to make sure I do, even if it is those sorts of circumstances every now and again, I slip up myself. Um, but it was fun. You know, there's the Brent book Walters of the Peloton, good friend. I saw him call somebody out the other day, the same exact thing, riding from the bus to the start uh, sign-in area at a bike race and he has it's a photo of him and, and a, uh, a friend in the background and the friend does not have his helmet on and Brent is calling him out. It's a good lesson. Always wear your helmet, kids.
0: Listen, the thing is, as you know, that even if you're an amateur riding very slow speed, uh, you know, a fall is a fall
1: mm-hmm. and
0: hitting your head is hitting your head. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a firm believer now I know a lot of uh, my circle, anyway, are very into riding bikes for errands, as you just described, uh, in the city. And uh, we all know what kind of hazards there are. So, no so anyway, shortage. I've become a huge uh, convert since that moment. That moment was was pivotal.
1: Awesome. I snapped you back into, into attention, into shape. Good to hear. Um, so let's speak with Bonnie Ford, the journalist. Um, You are a prolific sports journalist across the board, across sports, across across the globe. What was your introduction to journalism?
0: Gosh, uh, you know, I went to college without a really firm idea of exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, I knew that I had some facility and talent for writing. But I wasn't sure how I was going to use that. I also went to a small liberal arts college that did not have a journalism department. Mm -hmm. But I got involved in radio uh, at Oberlin College, my alma mater, and uh, specifically in sports radio, and found it, you know, I really had a passion for it. And after I graduated, I moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, Um, just liked the town, had some friends there, and started Doing freelance work for the local paper, and one thing led to another.
1: Mm-hmm. In in sticking primarily with sports journalism at that point,
0: I started in sports, and then I detoured over into regular news, uh-huh. and spent um, probably twelve or thirteen years covering your average, you know, city council meetings and education. I covered criminal courts uh-huh. uh, for the Detroit News, which was a fascinating
1: my goodness. experience. That must be colorful.
0: And also, you know, it, it was proved to be a really, really good foundation for sports writing later in my career. All of it, because I learned my way around public records. I learned my way around legal documents. Wow. I learned how to interview all kinds of different folks in executive positions. And all of that is applicable in sports.
1: I should say so. Yeah, Um, yeah, the level and ability to dig in is most certainly applicable. Um, So how about you are with ESPN.com for the past, fill in the blank, 13 years?
0: Uh, Let's see. I started doing uh, work for them as a freelancer back in 2005. So it's going on 14 years now.
1: Goodness gracious. I'll tell you what. For one, it's sort of intimidating to interview journalists because you guys are much better at this job than I. Um, but I spoke with somebody who was in... Uh, he was out in Silicon Valley working for Wired magazine. Prior to that, San Francisco Chronicle. It's probably three or four years prior to that, the 2005 date. It was early 2000s. And it's, yeah, it's the advent of online media. I mean, contribution work with ESPN to now. Um, you know, thats a that's a decade and a half nearly. I guess, what is the early phase of ESPN.com for you?
0: So I moved to the East Coast uh, mainly for family reasons. And uh, prior to my last newspaper job full time was with the Chicago Tribune. And I often say that walking away from that job, which was a great job, is the smartest stupid thing I've ever done. <laughs> well because uh, it was early 2000s. And that was right when the newspaper industry was starting to implode, and we did not understand at the time just how badly the industry would would cave in in terms of number of jobs and security and so forth. So, as a freelancer, I, I had my own freelance business for several years, and uh, I did have some newspaper clients. Um, shout out to the Boston Globe and the Portland Oregonian who gave me a lot of work, especially in cycling. But uh, I started freelancing for ESPN.com and it it just wasn't all that different. You know, as a writer, you write a story and you send it and they tell you what your deadline is and you hit it. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it was not different at all. What was a little bit different was uh, the first few times I went out on a longer feature story and it was suggested to me that I shoot my own photos Mm. and even shoot my own video in the early days of smartphones. And I had sort of an inclination to put my hands on my hips and say, wait a minute, I'm a writer. I don't do that stuff. (laughs) But uh, I was, at that time especially, and and really still today, we don't have staff photographers at ESPN. Mm -hmm. We have uh, relationships with agencies, and we will hire people for special jobs. But there were times and, and types of assignments where if I didn't, shoot some pictures, there wouldn't be any pictures. So that took some getting used to. And the different kind, like the way a story looks on a screen is very different from the way it looks on paper. Absolutely. And so I grew to appreciate what design could contribute to my pieces, as well as art and video. And so it was a huge evolution in storytelling and one that I'm actually very grateful for.
1: Yeah, it must be a uh, totally different game to, to not only be thinking about the piece you're writing, but then how it will look. Um, do you, has that been a segue also when you know, in the early days when they're asking you to, to take photos and do video? Are you doing much shooting these days? Or are you back to the, the your nuts and bolts of what you really like to do, which is journalism?
0: Well, for example, at the Tour de France, had I gone this summer... Mm -hmm. Uh, had I been in a position to shoot a little iPhone video at a team hotel or at a team bus or something that can contribute, um, on a social media post or even embedded in a story, or frankly, a lot of times now I do it for memory. Hmm. Uh, you know, I come back and yes, you can record it with an audio recorder, but having that clip in front of me of the writer or whoever saying whatever in that environment will often inform my writing better than the notes I could take or the audio I could
1: Yep. I've listened to a lot of podcasts about memory and how over time the actual facts can change a bit. So it's cool to have the photo, the actual documentation, the, the, the original content, um, and I think it really does inform. So no rookie to Tours de France's and a plethora of other sports. How many tours have you covered? Do you know? And, and let me I'm qualify that. Count. <laughs> uh, yeah. How many have you covered period in, or question mark? How many of you covered in person? It's well over 10.
0: Yeah. So I was at every tour from 2000 through 2011. Yes. And then I, I was away for a while. I came back last year in 2017. I believe this year would have been my 14th.
1: Wow. Wow, but wow, I don't wow. count
0: this year. You got to be there, Ted.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm with you, right? Um, how How about how'd you get into cycling in the first place? As opposed to, and you do cover you know, a variety of other sports. You have a penchant for writing about cycling. You have um, a very deep interest and knowledge, and and you're obviously not new to this. <laughs> um, I mean, even from the beginning, I thought you you produced some really great stuff. As you're in the midst of sports journalism, how do you hone in on cycling?
0: There's two answers to that question, I guess. One is that when I was 12 years old, my family uh, moved to Paris, France, and I spent all of my high school years there. Mm -hmm. And in the summertime, at summer camp, the Tour de France was a huge subject of discussion and fascination amongst my friends. I took a backpacking trip when I was 15 and we climbed uh, to the top of the Ballon to see the race and we got lost on the way up. We wound up kind of scrambling up this hillside where there was no trail and we were exhausted and so we pitch our tent, and we eat something, we go to sleep, get up the next morning uh-huh. and Mind you, I'd never seen it, really, on television. Never. The publicity caravan comes through. One of the sponsors in those days was Marlboro. Brilliant. And they tossed out little four packs of cigarettes. Way. True fact. Uh-huh. So that was interesting when you're 15. Sure. And then uh, here comes the race. And the race goes... And it was over. So and I did. turned to my friends and I said, we did this hike for that? Yeah. <laughs> uh so I guess I was underwhelmed my first time but being a teenager a wanting to fit high. in right we're not going to talk about that <laughs> not promoting that uh uh-huh. So um we would you know on our long backpacking trips we would stop uh in villages to shop and whatever and get the newspaper they keep and look at the standings and so I started to learn about cycling and it fascinated me the tactics, everything was so different. And, uh, and then I came back to the States for college and kind of was away from it for a while until the LeMond years where I, I paid attention, but I was actually not a sports writer at that time. Mm-hmm. But the second part of the answer to your question, I probably have Christian Vandevelde to thank because uh, I was working for the Chicago Tribune in 1998 when um, Christian signed his first contract with Postal. And one of his teammates was Lance Armstrong, who was coming back from cancer at that time. And um, my bosses thought that that was interesting enough, Christian being a Chicago native, uh, Lance's story obviously also compelling, that they sent me to that, their first training camp in January of 1998. And the rest is really history. Because huh. once I became uh, sort of involved with all those storylines, involving that team, involving cycling at the time, um, it was just a no-brainer. I didn't cover my first tour until 2000. So that was would have been Lance's second win. Mm-hmm. But I was hooked.
1: And how, man, I mean, I almost want to say, do you have to go back to the microfiche to find news from... Nineteen ninety-eight. I'm proud to remember that word and know what a microfiche is. It's it almost seems foresightful for the Chicago Tribune in nineteen ninety-eight to have that story. And sure, Lance at that point, I think, is a world champion and he's coming back from cancer. But he wasn't Lance in ninety-eight. Is not Lance of Tour de France number one fame. No. So even then, I mean, I'd be I'd be fascinated to read that article. Uh, do you think it's online?
0: I went back and found it recently, no kidding. so I can send you the link. And I'd be what fascinated. struck me about it is that there really was it was unknown. Uh-huh. I mean, we all knew the very severe and drastic treatment he had had. I can't read his mind. I couldn't then, can't now. But I don't think he knew how his body was going to react to elite level training and racing. So. It was a very interesting conversation. I was also really interested in Christian's career. His uh, Family dad history. had been yeah. right, an Olympian, obviously. Uh, Christian, if I'm not mistaken, went to Atlanta on the track.
1: That sounds correct.
0: And so, uh, being able to kind of follow the whole arc of his career, jumping ahead for a minute, yeah. uh, a makes me feel a little bit old, but b <laughs> um, was really fascinating. All everything he went through. Um, in fact, just slight detour. The first time I ever met Christian was at a speed skating event, Chicago. In Chicago. What, who? Uh, no, I'm sorry. In Milwaukee. Pardon okay. me. Yep. Uh, it was Bonnie Blair's yeah. last race. Wow. Up she was in a at the. At the pet, uh, she's from Champaign, Illinois, actually. Okay. But based in Milwaukee for many years, as the skaters were. Uh huh. And tons of crossover between cycling and speed skating. So uh, I met Christian when he was still in high school at At that race, sitting hoop. with his sister Marissa, um, yeah. just kind of you know big gangly kid with a big smile and
1: that sounds like Christian yep oh, what a riot um what is your you do both well. what is your preference when writing about a cycling and then we can talk about other sports in general, which I'm definitely interested in the actual the nuances of a bike race uh, of the Tour de France of the stages unfolding, or do you like Jumping into the second or third level stories, you know, second level story, a Ted King, for example, or a Lawson Craddock who might break a a scapula and have an interesting piece of the story that is the Tour de France, or then, you know, a big, much larger, overarching story, something like performance enhancing drugs. Um, I guess, you know, take that in any way you'd like. (laughs) I like to ask (laughs) open-ended questions. Um, And I will also interrupt to say, the race is about to come by again, and I'm going to (laughs) snap some selfies as you're replying to my question, because this is going to be perfect timing. Bonnie, go.
0: So I would say all of the above. I mean, I've written uh, breaking news stories, analysis, um, short features, long features, and there's a place for all of those, and I enjoy kind of trying to keep my chops on all of them. I've
1: always written for general interest. Ready? Say cheese. Oh, my goodness, I'm missing it. There we are. I've always written for
0: general interest publications. And so what I've always tried to keep in mind is there are other places that hardcore bike folks can go. If they want to know what gear somebody rode on, you know, what hill... Mm -hmm. Uh, or the latest in techie stuff, that's not me. I mean, I've always been upfront with folks that uh, I ride very casually. I've probably never been in the saddle for longer than 25 miles. <laughs> I don't ride a road bike. I don't know a heck of a lot about the super sophisticated, you know, nuances of uh, road bike technology. But my friends in the trade press do a great job with that. I prefer to write, you know, kind of as I process it. So there's enough there for a hardcore fan to find something interesting, but it's also accessible for somebody who's not following all the time, who, you know, is intimidated by some of the more, you know, granular stuff.
1: (laughs) Of which there is a lot.
0: So I think the most enjoyable part for me was mastering over the years the tactics within a race and understanding them and there was an infamous um stage back in 2008 or 9 of no it was 9 of the Tour de France where George Hinckapie had a chance to go into the yellow jersey and there was a lot of um There was some interesting uh, tactics that took place toward the end of that race, uh, very polarizing within Mm -hmm. the peloton for, if you want to go back and read about it, you can. Um, But I stayed up all night writing that piece because I went around and it's like Rashomon, the movie where you see everything from the same thing from eight different angles. I went and did all the interviews that were relevant for all the teams and riders who were involved. Nobody has the whole puzzle. Everybody has a piece of it. And your job is to assemble it and explain it. That was one of the more challenging uh, examples of that kind of writing, especially because people were so pissed off for various reasons um, and not able or willing in some cases to tell me the whole truth on that day. So...
1: Uh And and it must be interesting telling the story to um, a full spectrum of cycling intelligence audience. Right. The people who know every nuance and every detail of all the players' history and those who are curious about what's happening in that bike race over in France. Right. And telling that story.
0: Right. So one of the things I always keep in mind, and this goes back to my first tour, my first day of my first tour was the Mont Ventoux stage in 2000. And I was delayed getting there. Uh-huh. I walked into the press room as the riders were on the final climb, and Armstrong and Pantani crest the hill together, and, you know, Pantani wins the stage, the press room erupts, yeah. and everybody around me is saying, Lance, let Pantani win. And I said, what? What? <laughs> I, honestly, sure. I, and, and I just could not get my head around it, and so that's that was my the beginning of my education in you know tactics, etiquette, if you want to call it that, all of the things that can play into um, what looks like an incomprehensible result, mm-hmm. especially to American viewers, and especially to American viewers and readers at that time mm-hmm. who were not maybe as as knowledgeable as they are now. So I love to think that when I'm writing tactics, I can, I can explain them to the person back home who's going, what? Yeah. yeah. As well as to the person that, that might have some more um, experience with them.
1: Yeah. That's a great hot button example um, of all the nuances of all the song and dance. Um, I often, I grew up playing hockey. I played from the time I was, I could stand up until I was uh, 17 years old, still playing the. Old men's league, which is really fun, except for waking up at 5 a.m. to get that ice time. Um, and I I compare it similarly to fighting in hockey um, in that it's this sort of arcane, uh, unwritten rule about how fighting takes place and, and the song and dance behind that and how Oddly enough, it serves a purpose, but yeah, why do football players, as soon as somebody throws a punch, they're kicked out? In cycling, you throw a punch and you're out. But in hockey, it's those two guys are allowed to duke it out for a while, and, and there's, a, there's a reason for it. Whether it lasts forever is another question. So, taking this in a little bit different direction, the year is 2000. You're in the press room on the Mont Von 2 stage. Are you, how many females are in that room?
0: Oh, boy. I would say the ratio is probably 100 to 1. Oh goodness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, a handful. Okay. Yeah, it's it's better now. Uh not a lot better, but uh-huh. better. And and frankly, you know, <laughs> with the exception of certain sports, uh tennis, which mm-hmm. I I cover quite a bit has a, a very strong uh female sports writer contingent, but uh soccer is probably uh, less than cycling, at least in my experience. So industry-wide, um, the percentage has remained, unfortunately, fairly stable and low
1: mm-hmm.
0: in print slash digital for a long time. It's but it's better than when I started for sure.
1: Do you see improvements in all of the sports, or do you? I mean, it probably must be sport by sport. Cycling, it's incrementally better. Soccer, it's infinitesimally small. Is, it, is that the case? Tennis is uh, has, has very good parity?
0: It varies by sport. Yeah. I think uh, hockey, uh, back when I was starting out as a female sports writer, uh, I guess I've always been a female sports writer, sorry. Yeah, when accurate. I started writing sports, uh-huh. um, hockey was known as a place where uh, a female beat writer could do her job and not worry a lot about harassment. And there's various theories for that. Uh, One of it, with a nod to our host country, is that uh, the Canadian guys as a whole, and it's dangerous to generalize, seem to be very respectful and, um, you know, easy to deal with in, in a locker room situation. So I know a lot of women who got their start covering hockey. Baseball it's harder. You know, you're, first of all, it's just such a long grinding season. Baseball clubhouses back in the day were not, you know, the friendliest, uh, to women that's changed over time. And, and what I also like to tell folks is it's not just about the locker room. That's what always attracts attention. Uh, that's kind of the sensational, if you will, thought for most people, Locker rooms are not comfortable for male sports riders either. <laughs> They're just <laughs> yeah, not. I
1: can believe uh, it. <laughs> you
0: guys in cycling really haven't had to deal with that because your locker room is the team bus and nobody goes on the team bus. Accurate, uh, yeah. So um, it's like being in, you know, someone else's bathroom. It's just not a comfortable, cool situation. And many male sports riders will tell you that they've had lousy experiences in there too. So one reason that Olympic sport... I think has attracted more women is because for the most part, there is not a locker room. You're dealing with people, uh, either kind of in the field of play or, uh, you know, at their homes or training bases or the, the locker room and what comes out of that is just not as critical Mm -hmm. in Olympic sport overall.
1: Um, you do cover all of the sports we've just mentioned. Um, I, I love tennis. I think tennis is great. You do terrific coverage there. Um, it, that is a sport that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, they pay the women quite well within the sport with the athletes themselves. Uh, you know, there's a great... Uh, as opposed to professional cycling, for example, where the women are paid pennies. I'm asking out of my own ignorance and I apologize. Do you, do you cover female cycling? Do you cover... As much as you do other female sports, female tennis, uh, female skiing, for example?
0: Well, I'm proud to say that uh, I have um, devoted a a good amount of time, especially in the last 10 years, to covering uh, key figures in in women's cycling. I think from an American perspective, there's been just as much interest, uh, particularly in the Olympic year, to uh, women cyclists as there is to men. And that's partly because we've been
1: good at it. We have some great athletes.
0: So, yes, I've done profiles uh, over the years of Kristen Armstrong, of Evie Stevens, of Megan Guarnier, of uh, Carmen Small, of... Of, of. Um, I did a piece a few years ago that was super interesting to report on uh, the 2012-2016 team, which has been done amazing things for the developmental level of women's and girls cycling in this country or in the United States. Uh, the, the hook there was that Barry Bonds was involved as uh, an early patron yeah. of, of that team and partly because of his love for the bike.
1: Which and, is as pure as it gets. He is a f- really fun guy to go ride a bike with. He is. He is a riot.
0: And he'll tell you, <laughs> and, and it was a big you know, part of that story, that the bike saved him. Mm -hmm. at at a time when he was depressed and aimless and um, not sure where he was going in life. And I think no matter what your feelings are about Barry Bonds, and he can be a very polarizing figure as well, you have to, uh, you know, that piece of it is very authentic. And um, the bike has done that for many, many people, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: no matter whether they're multimillionaire ballplayers or average folks.
1: Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a point of therapy for so many. It's a I just love how it's like an input of your energy. It's an output of your energy. It's such an emotional magnet for the right reasons, and it absolutely is for Barry. And if I'm lucky, I'm gonna be able to put a mic in his hand and talk to him for a while.
0: Well, we got away from the women's sure um, yes issue there though. Digression and, complete. And I really um, I am staggered that things are so bad for them still, economically. I absolutely feel there should be a minimum wage. I've seen you know stories written that delve into why it's hard, and come on, at yeah. the, it's a gesture, <laughs> at the very least, that is truly important. And, and I've, I've written that before, and I'll probably write it again, as a gesture to say that this is a profession and not a hobby.
1: Um, about? I think there's, there's a really good parallel between domestic male and female professional racing and professional female racing on the highest level, which is often it is a voluntary activity and teams fold in the, in the bat of an eye. Um, I think the only sport that's sort of doing it, the only level is, you know, division one world tour, professional male cyclists, they can make a minimum salary. There's, there are mandatory insurances and so forth. But yeah, that, that same quote unquote profession as a domestic professional cyclist and a female professional cyclist is, it's such a bummer, uh, that there isn't more resources behind it. Do you, do you, can you see a crystal ball? Can you see a change taking place, um, for female cycling? I mean, do you see, do you see progress? Do you see two steps forward, one back, see a whole handful of lateral steps, I,
0: I What I see is I see cyclical improvement and then it does seem to be a few steps forward or a few wheel lengths forward and a few back. And it all hinges on the the Olympics, essentially. Mm-hmm. But there's a handful of countries and, and you could. Um, this has happened across women's sport, and that's why I'm confident in what I'm about to say. There are a handful of countries that could show leadership on this issue. And um, if those federations and those leaders got together and put pressure in the right places, I think it would happen because I've seen it happen elsewhere. And uh, there's just no there's no excuse for it. The women train just as hard, race uh, just as hard to their... The limit of their abilities. They take the same physical risks. They make the same lifestyle sacrifices, and um, and they maybe this wouldn't be quite as true if they were paid better. But they most of the top women that I've covered have unbelievable backstories: mm-hmm. how they got into the sport, gotcha. how they did it while you know often pursuing undergraduate and graduate degrees because they knew cycling might not be there for them later on. Or, you know, having children, um, having families, uh, having other jobs. I mean, so those profiles that I mentioned a few minutes ago were fascinating because of that. Not to say that there aren't fascinating guys in the Peloton, you know, have been able to do nothing but cycling for their careers. But
1: Yeah, male professional cycling at the highest level. I mean, I often call it a... a collar sport and it's, you know, the, the pay is blue collar compared to other professional sports. Uh, it's a, it's a put your nose down and grind kind of sport. Um, uh, w- one interesting thing you just said is, is, you know, the success of female cycling often hinges around the Olympics, which is something that I completely agree with. And it's funny cause that doesn't really happen in, in male cycling. Uh, it certainly does around the track. It does in, uh, England, and in the UK, and in Australia, the countries that do have magnificent track programs, far less so on the men's side, and, you know, Greg Van Avermont racing right in front of us here, Olympic gold medalist, it's sort of a feather in your cap, but it's not the thing that you go after uh, on the men's side as much as it is the women's, and I understand the, the financial repercussions, why?
0: Well, and let's not forget that, unfortunately, it's one of the few races everyone can watch on television.
1: Huh. So,
0: you know, look at, and I know that um, she would have rather been on the podium, but look at Mara Abbott, you know, look at what kind of empathy, support, uh, just sort of valor Mm. uh, came out of her ride in Rio and how many people related to that. And so, you know, again, I don't, Probably need to trample this subject to death because it's there's plenty been written about it, and said about it, but TV coverage is a key uh, for women's races, mm-hmm. and once that starts truly, you know, growing, I think you'll see, you know, more interest, more sponsor interest, all of those things that have to happen in order for the sport to grow.
1: And it's funny, I mean, I can watch a bike race all day long. I I actually enjoy it, but by and large, I think we uh, maybe we do agree maybe we don't i think bike racing can be ex- extremely boring to watch on tv i mean i sort of right in front of us these guys are doing 17 laps 16 laps of uh a what 12 mile circuit or so it's almost as though professional female cycling is in such a place that they could write the script now and they say you know what this bike racing is boring to watch let's figure out a way to make it more interesting uh whether it is you know Shorter stages, more dynamic stages, or more stories to tell because I think that's what largely all sports are about is uh, athletes and teams telling a a interesting tale out on the playing fields and arenas and open roads. So, yeah, who's going to write that script is a great question.
0: And it's, you, you just mentioned the double-edged coin because the women over the years have chafed at the idea that they're limited to shorter distances, they're limited to shorter... Uh, length of stage races. And yet, many have also told me, hey, look, you know, if that is what it is right now, one of the advantages it gives us is there's racing from the gun. You know, there's sure. not a lot of lollygagging around and then all of a sudden everybody gets excited, you know, yeah. in the last circuit um, or the last you know, few miles or
1: kilometers. So, uh-huh. well, you're hitting it on the head. So, folks, the breakaway just went by. Six minutes ago, quick race report, five in the breakaway, BMC is on the front pulling at a pretty leisurely pace. The break is now at seven minutes, and they're not going to race for the next two hours. Um, There is a lot of downtime in professional cycling. My wife was asking me earlier, you know, why why is this particular break going up the road if they know they're going to be caught on this day, just because one-day races are so much different than stage races, and it's like... Pantani winning that stage—it's—it's it's a lot of funny unwritten rules in the sport of cycling. Let's take another bigger step back. Um, you write about all sorts of fascinating sports. You write—what is your favorite sport to write about? Do you have one?
0: I get that question a lot, and uh, Darn it, I would... thought I was unique no, in no, that no, no, one. No, 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 but l- <laughs> I can now answer it at a little more length. And I think I—I uh, I love to cover. Uh, Endurance sport in general. And and cycling pulled me into some other sport. I had already covered distance running when I first started covering cycling. And I've covered swimming quite a bit, which is another sport I, I love to cover. Only because it tends to attract interesting people and personalities. I don't know why that is, because it's the most tedious <laughs> sport to train, I would contend, <laughs> in the world, because it's a lot of black line, you know, as they say. I was a swimmer um, as a kid, uh-huh. and, and that may be part of it, but I, I theorize that maybe it's because you have to spend so much time in your own head that if you don't have an interesting brain, you might not be able to stick to it. <laughs> so I, I've uh, loved covering that, that sort of group of endurance sports, cycling, triathlon, Uh, Open water swimming, big specialty of mine. Um, So I I love the idea of, you know, how you train, what your mentality is, um, hitting those limits in all of those sports. There's a commonality there, and I also like the fact that they're outdoors and, and they've taken me to some very cool places, and they're contested out, you know, in public where people can access them and there's no luxury boxes and no, uh, very little sort of reserved seating.
1: Uh Well, sports in general are kind of entertaining just because they, they are exceedingly arbitrary. Um, and I mean that objectively as much as I do tastefully, I mean, it gave me a career and I loved it and I love the friends and family and, and community that it's given me but they are funny. You know, it's a sort of arbitrary distance point A to point B uh, X number of laps around the, the downtown Quebec city circuit. Um, and yet we still put so much interest and empathy and, and, and earnest curiosity into it. Uh, and I love it. I mean, I, I obviously love sports. You love sports and it's, it's I don't mean to be waxing too poetic here, but. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, no, I'm just, it, I love what you see, you know, you point out the, The public nature of various sports and i think of cycling as a most key example but you're right i mean it's sort of no different than a a a ski race like hey let's pick this random mountain and go down it really quickly um oh goodness sorry again digression complete uh what's the most interesting place you have traveled as a result of sports writing
0: That's gonna stump me. Um,
1: You're welcome to say Quebec City.
0: It's it is gorgeous (laughs) here. Looking Um, out at those mountains.
1: How about how about what's the most challenging place?
0: Most challenging place beyond a doubt was Sochi. Yep. That
1: 2014.
0: 2014 Winter Games. Okay.
1: Yes. Um, Yeah, that caught the attention of some some folks back on this side of the pond, either side of the pond, depending on which pond you're you're traveling back to. Yeah, it sounded like things weren't totally ready to roll around the time of the start of the Olympics.
0: No, and we, who have been at this for a while, we don't want to be the story. We don't want our working conditions particularly to be uh, of interest because, in my case anyway, I know that there are lots of people who would trade with me in a second, and so I don't like to complain. Uh, I had never been to Russia before, and... So there was that. There was sort of the landing someplace totally blind. And uh, the atmosphere was not terribly festive at most of the events that I covered. Uh, Women's ski jumping, speaking of women's sport, which I spent a whole long lead up with that team since it was the first time that women had been able to compete in that sport in the Olympics, spent a lot of time with the U.S. team out in Park City, Utah. And here they are, their showcase, you know, after all this time and all the legal challenges and fighting their own federation, and and the stands were half full. Now, maybe it would have been the same somewhere else. I I can't say, but there was just a certain um, kind of flatness, other than hockey, for obvious reasons, and figure skating, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a premier event no matter what winter games you're at. So... Russia was challenging, Rio was challenging. Hmm. Because you knew, and has since been confirmed by many, many, many uh, good journalists reporting from down there, that uh, the legacy, quote-unquote, was really pretty hollow. Uh, The poverty is so in your face there in Rio. It's not like our cities where you have, you know it's very segregated and the poverty is kind of over here someplace in the affluent it's very patchwork there. You can't avoid it. I did a big piece on the water pollution there. Um, it's unfortunate that the, the promises that were made about uh, providing better sanitation and water quality were not kept and will not be kept. So that was a, that was an experience where you felt, okay, yes, I'm, I'm here to cover sport and maybe a little bit of culture and, and the wider experience, but you also felt like, man, I'm going to get on a plane and leave here after three weeks, and these folks who live here are going to be dealing with the impact of it or the non-impact of it for the rest of their lives.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And there was a certain guilt attached to that and you know i wrote that a lot of folks wrote that i'm I'm not alone in that sentiment
1: yeah well yeah that's that's certainly making an impact more than not writing the story in the first place um man and i wonder often you hear about countries quote-unquote cleaning up the poverty kicking out the poverty to to showcase their country and cities in the in the most positive light and so to hear that I mean, maybe I wonder if that was the polished version of Rio, and then the aftermath is even that much worse.
0: Yeah, there's not a lot you can do to polish certain parts of Rio, so noted. <laughs> I haven't think, been, you know, we
1: currently not on my list of places to visit. Although I would love to. Apparently, dancing is cool, and tall, lanky, white guy. So, needless <laughs> to say, I dance well.
0: On the other hand, I've been very privileged to to.
1: Sure.
0: Uh, cover sporting events in great cities of the world.
1: How about, Um, yeah, what's, what's, what are noteworthy, most spectacular, some of the most spectacular, some of the most interesting across sport?
0: Across sport, gosh. uh, I mean, tennis takes place in some very nice (laughs) uh, places. Uh, I would say, you know, the London Olympics um, was a fantastic event. From a working standpoint for us because the public transit and and the means of getting around is was so easy you didn't have to rely on uh bus transport which we often do at big events and so you really can get to know a place i'll go back to the tour for a minute because every tour de france you pass through six or seven distinct regions often with distinct accents, distinct food, wine, topography and I've had many french folks tell me that I've seen more of france than they have <laughs> after 13 tours that's wild so i have an ambition that someday cuz the the frustrating part is that you blow through these towns you're you're in an absolutely astounding place for 16 hours and then you have to get up and go Preach again into my choir so someday I'm going to put together my own Tour de France uh-huh. where I go back to all the places that uh, I have that feeling about and actually spend a little time there.
1: Brilliant. I love it. Um, I have a friend who just reached out this morning and said he wants to do his own tour of California and, and go at a the similar route. But, you know, be able to take in the towns, take in the sites a little bit more than what you would do if you were chugging along, staring at the wheel in front of you at 25 miles per hour. Um, True as well. And then I've had um, not just events,
0: but going to report features. I mean, just this year, for example, uh, I went to Prague for the first time to report a feature on Petra Kvitova, the tennis player who was attacked in her home and has made a fantastic comeback. I went to Sudtirol on the Italian-Austrian border to cover a biathlon World Cup because I did a long story on the U.S. biathlon team. That was a part of the world that I had no idea existed. Beautiful. It's Italy, but they speak German. Yeah, yeah. Um, Very untouristed. So I, and I don't just mean to restrict my sort of uh, survey here to North America and and Europe because I've uh, also, I went and covered a winter Olympics in Japan. I anticipate I will be covering a Summer Olympics in in Japan in a couple of years, uh-huh. and Rio so far is my only South American jaunt. Uh, I have not traveled extensively in Africa, so I've got I've got a lot more to do, Ted.
1: mm uh-huh. Oh man, the world's your oyster. How about Australia? You been the Australian Open and all that?
0: Uh, love Australia.
1: Yes, It's lovely just spot.
0: Too bad it takes so long to get there.
1: Is much like New England, you can't get there from here. You can. It's just going to take a lot of time in an airplane.
0: <laughs> I had a, a really interesting experience in 2009 where uh, I covered a week of, I covered the tour down under and then went and did the second week of the Australian Open. Uh, so I got to see a little bit more. Uh, the race obviously is based in Adelaide, but yep. you kind of go out in the, the hub and spokes model, see a little bit. And Melbourne's a fantastic city.
1: Stunning. Race the World Championship there once.
0: So again, uh, this is why we don't complain about our working conditions, <laughs> Ted. Because I, I, I have a lot more to do. But the, I think at last count, I had worked in you know several dozen countries, and because of my childhood in France, adolescence anyway, uh, I just really believe in going someplace with all your senses jammed open and taking in as much as you can and um, and incorporating that into your your writing and reporting and just, what else would I have done? I'd probably be you know serving drinks or flipping pizzas because I have a restless personality and I like not having a routine and I like being a little bit on the back foot, not totally comfortable. That's when you do your best work and that's when you're your best human being
1: as well could not agree more you're preaching to my choir once again um i would be remiss if i did not bring up and i'd like to you know let you go watch this this bike race that we're attending so this short october 20th is coming up and that is the eighth annual king challenge you have you have taken an interest in liking and we have spoken at length about um what the the king challenge is it's a it's an annual ride that benefits the Crumple Center, which is an organization and facility for adults with brain injury after my dad had a stroke 15 years ago. And it's also a cause that is near and dear to you. Uh, so explore that for just a moment, if you will, or as many moments as you'd like.
0: Well, first of all, because I believe that uh, athletes have a wonderful platform to pursue and support the causes that they believe in, whether it's LeBron James or Riding um, a bike, Love a it. more unknown um, athlete to a general audience. There's there are opportunities there and I'm always glad to see people taking them. So that's one thing covering the sports I cover, many of which are high risk. Uh, I, have known many athletes who have had brain injuries and the science, you know, we're so much further along now than we were when I started out as a journalist. That I think it's literally a subject that you cannot write or talk too much about both in terms of awareness, um, period of, of risks and things like wearing helmets, uh, et cetera, which I realized was, was not a factor with your dad, but, and also the fact that it's just, you know, families and individuals need support after the initial incident. You know, there's, there's crisis and drama and, and most of us are pretty good at supporting our friends and family and, and other individuals, um, through that. But then there are often long recoveries and, and little understood effects that, that linger. And so the more that we know and the more that we can be empathic and and support people that we know and love through that, the better. So I'm I'm really glad uh, that you've continued to do your ride. Uh, I have had friends and family affected myself, not elite athletes, but regular folks who, for one reason or another, bad luck or mishap, have had to experience this. So the invisible injury, right? I mean,
1: it is. Yeah. And we, we hit it on the head. We, we like seeing immediate results. We like, um, we like to see progress visually, you know, you break a bone and you get an x-ray the next day and the next month and the next year and you see healing. And that is one of the biggest challenges of a brain injury is it's a hidden epidemic. And, the concussive injuries that we're seeing, whether it's cycling or boxing or football or soccer or whatever the heck, they are more and more common. And you're right. Um, the, the, the science is getting considerably better. And I think that the exploring the brain is one of the biggest fields of, of medical, uh, uh, insight that we're yet to tap into. So, yeah, it's wild. Um, please come up to the King Challenge. We've had a handful of folks from the PA region. Um, yeah, Stratum, New Hampshire, that time of year. You got foliage absolutely peaking. You got amazing folks all riding for a really good cause. And we can you can put in your plug to do the 25 miles. You can do a 10 mile, a 30 mile, or a 62 mile. Bonnie, we would love to have you.
0: It won't happen this year, but um, I plan on it at some point. In the future, I've got a, a high school reunion actually on oh, that day, so oh, dang. that's my alibi.
1: Uh, you're totally <laughs> accepted, 2019 or beyond. We'd love to have you.
0: Thanks, Ted. Um, and full disclosure, I received a packet of maple syrup, one ounce packet, for this appearance. Yes. So I just want to
1: be clear on that. Yes, we needed to make that clear. You've been paid off in maple syrup. We are. It is Vermont maple syrup, as you point out, as we're here in the uh, the Quebec maple homeland. Let's do some quick science. Do you know how many antioxidants there are in maple syrup? No idea. I think 54, if my memory serves me correctly. I think including one that's even called something like Quebecicum. You're going to have to look that up. Maple syrup is a superfood. I knew it was only a matter of time before we got to throw some some maple science at you. Maple trivia. (laughs) Anyway... If you've got nothing else right now, there's a helicopter circling overhead, which probably means it's time to start watching this bike race. Indeed. Bonnie Ford, I thank you very much for your time. I thank you for the insight, the friendship. Let's go watch a bike race.
0: Thanks, Ted.